Pretty Policeman, Multiple Paradox Net Files. These are some of The Little Darlings. It's great to be gay. Our favourite episode titles. Right on, sister. Please be gentle. From all three seasons of the logbooks. You might well be very angry. So we've printed them on a t-shirt and a poster. Crash pad needed. Kiss my rump. And our limited stock is for sale at thelogbooks.org. Interested and willing? With profits going to Switchboard. Thank you for being here. So take a look at thelogbooks.org slash shop. This episode contains archaic language around disability. This is a logbook entry from May the 10th, 1997. Does anyone know the name of a group for amputees? Man called wanting to get together with people who wouldn't be freaked out by the fact that he has only one arm. This is a logbook entry from April the 15th, 2003. Blind caller in South London. A blind lesbian called and was going to call back after I'd looked for any services available which could help her meet other lesbian women. I wasn't able to search the computers as they are down, but if she does call back, there are some numbers in April's Gay Times which may be of use. Oh, I really hope the blind lesbian called back. Yeah, and that these callers found their groups or felt included in the spaces they went to. Yeah, definitely. As a queer person, a queer able-bodied person, I still feel excluded from society and certain spaces. It's It can certainly be a really isolating experience or it has felt isolating for me. Yeah, and I think what we hear in these logbook entries is that these are people who are identifying as LGBTQI plus in one way or another and also living with a disability and they don't necessarily know where to go or to feel comfortable in an LGBTQI plus space or a disabled space. Yeah, right. So feeling excluded from maybe both of those spaces. And we know that certainly from the things that we have seen in the logbooks, that when you have intersecting identities, that can be something that you often feel. You're listening to The Logbooks, stories from Britain's LGBTQ plus history and conversations about being queer today in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. In this season, we're reading through the notes made by the volunteers who took calls between 1992 and 2003. I'm Tash Walker. And I'm Adam Smith. Episode 7, The Inability of Others to Understand. In this episode, we're talking about people with disabilities reaching out for support from Switchboard between 1992 and 2003. And sometimes you can tell it's like their last port of call if they're exasperated with a lack of support from carers, families, the medical profession, government and the rest of society. One person we spoke to is Kath Gillespie-Sells, who, as well as volunteering for Switchboard, also supported and campaigned for LGBTQI plus people with a disability. But first, let's start with her personal story. I came out, I became disabled in late 70s, early 80s. I'm Kath Gillespie-Sells, MBE. I am a 70-year-old woman, lesbian, a disabled mother and grandmother, and that's me. I just remember 1981 as um, being the International Year of Disabled People and also the year I came out to myself. I'd already been disabled for about three years, but um, I had kind of seen it as something that I would 
fight my way out of um, struggle. I had I was had been a ward sister up at Barnet General, and I was very headstrong, and um, I wanted a career for life, and I chose nursing, and I did bloody well in it. And I was one of the youngest ward sisters around, and um, I was looking after two wards when I was 26. I loved it. I loved every day I woke up and went to work. I loved it. But um, I got a hospital infection. I was, I was doing a teaching session, and I was showing nurses how to de-slough a wound. And the long and the short from that, I got an infection that went into my bloodstream, and I... Um, Almost died, but didn't. She resuscitated. I recovered, but I had an infection in my spinal cord from the original infection, which was obviously it was blood poisoning, so it was septicemia, it was everywhere. So I had infection, spot, focuses of infection left around, one in my pelvis one in my spine. Um, the biggest problem obviously being the one in my spine in terms of walking and peeing and that kind of stuff. So that, and, and the pain, because it also, I was lucky enough for that to also to have a part of the, part of the infection to, to hit the meninges, which is the bit that really hurts, you know, really hurts when you're back. It's the kind of sensitive part. So that's, that's really what causes an awful lot of the pain. And um, I was dealing with that, but also but just seeing it as something. It was a gradual progression anyway, so I, I saw it as well. I've been ill, but I will get better. I will, but I will get better. <laughs> I insist upon it. But as time went by, I could see it was beating me. And um, then I heard of this disabled women's group. Oh, I had become a feminist in the process of... I don't know. I suppose when you become, when you, you your life is on a trajectory and it stops, you look at all the things that you were, you perhaps were dabbling with, and feminism was one for me that that stuck. I knew if I if I was a doctor, I'd have had a much better, I'd have come out a much better position out of the NHS. But as a nurse, anyway, that's a misogynist story. So. I, I, despite that, I'd been, I, I had uh, been a feminist. So, and sad was a, a, a disabled women's group. I felt I could be myself in there. So I went in again, still thinking it's not me, but came out thinking, yeah, that's me actually. I heard so many stories like my own. Over time, not immediately, because you're just bat still batting it away. I don't know how many times. It's the same with, as you can, you know, as you know, with the switchboard and the gay life it's just people have to take it at their own pace you can't force it and um so i i, I did subsequently see start seeing myself as, as a disabled person and started feeling angry about it this is a logbook entry from august the 28th 1998 call from a married gay man who has ms though fairly mobile he has physical problems including impotence. He has had a few sexual encounters as passive partner due to impotence. Talked for an hour about isolation and trying to find friends, support, cafes and clubs. 
He wanted to go to heaven, but only to talk as couldn't dance and alcohol wouldn't be good with his tablets. He has lost all his friends, feels the Asian community and his family are against him. Married for 18 years, but wife has had several affairs and is currently seeing another man who is physically threatening to him, so he's afraid of leaving the house. What physical disability groups exist for him? I remember when I, after, when I first came back to London, so I'd come out and everything at college. Um, back then in the uh, early, mid-70s, I knew one or two people who had been fighters in the Second World War, including one man I can remember who'd been an airman and uh, who had been dreadfully, dreadfully burned, terribly, terribly burned and, 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 and disfigured. And he had found it tremendously difficult, just be, partly because of his generation being you know, growing up before, uh, obviously before uh, the sixty-seven reform, but also because of the the, the scars and burns that he the, that he had had. He had, he had found it difficult to find a place within the gay community, but he had done in. He had, and he had got good friends, and, well, I certainly slept with him, and I had a great time. This is a logbook entry from the 2nd of December, 2000. Got a call from a handicapped person in a residential home. He's not sure if he's gay, and started to ask for information on wanking, brochures and leaflets. He sounded very sincere. Lots of things came up in the conversation. He started to ask personal questions, which I allowed and answered very generally. He mentioned that he likes men's feet, followed by the question if I could take my shoes and socks off, which I gladly did not. Told him that I did not want to take the conversation in that direction. He got annoyed and said he would never call back if I was here. The sad thing is that some of the issues we discussed sounded very real, and I've supported him on those. Unfortunately for him, this number was not the right number for him. People always call to say thank you. You meet them at Pride. And our call as a, a, a amazing support is why we do it. We had a very regular caller in this period. A young man who was living in supported housing. And his care workers had put a phone box in his room. And he had a, pi- a pile of coins on the phone box so he could phone us. Because we were the only people in the world he could speak to. The only people in the world he could be himself with. You know, he had a learning disability, he had physical problems, he lived in residential care. But but we were able to give him some kind of respite, is that the right word? Some kind of break from a life that was mundane beyond belief. And he was so grateful to us. And he, 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 he always was effusive in saying thank you. Um... It was actually quite difficult because when nothing very much happens in somebody's life, having a regular conversation with them was quite strange. But but he no longer calls us. I have no idea what happened. I think he stopped calling at, at some point in the 90s. But but for a few years, he called really regularly. And I, I think we have conversations about, about people who phone us regularly. But he, he was an interesting man and he always he was always very effusive in his thanks. We, we only know what the caller tells us. And 
when you're talking about we use the word spectrum so often um, and it's not always appropriate I, I, I think perhaps variety is a better word for disability um, when you're dealing when you're dealing with a, a variety of disabilities you've got to look at how they impact in a very very personal context I think Richard puts that really well. Yes. Having been a volunteer for so many years, he's got such a wealth of experience with complicated calls like that. Love Richard. It's always so important to remember how all parts of a person's identity intersects with all parts of their life. Like here, when Kath talks about being a lesbian, a mother, and a person living with a disability. Lost, partially lost childcare for a while. My two boys had to fight to get them back. Um, you know, I, I subsequently shared custody with their, with their dad, but it was always a bit more in his favour because I was the disabled lesbian and therefore two huge disadvantages going against me in this heterosexual normal society, if you like. And, and it was horrible. And you kind of knew after a while that there's no point going up against the law. A, you can't afford it. B, you know, I'd have spent all my money on barristers trying to take on the NHS. I wasn't going to do that again against the, against the Crown. So, I, I, you know, I knew the best thing was to work with their dad, which, um, which I did. And, you know, he, he also has had to take on a great learning curve. And, you know, he's, he's still in our lives now, still in my life now. Tash, how did Switchboard try to work better to support callers with a disability? Well, Switchboard had to think, it had to learn. And as always, it was constantly evolving as it still does today, where we have instant messaging and emails. But in the 90s, it all started, Adam, with a minicom. So that's the text phone thing, right? Where a caller who can't here can actually speak to the volunteer by texting basically down the phone line yeah totally you know what actually i have spoken to people on the phone using a text phone too very cool yeah and also a nice bit of trivia about the minicom which is a word that is heavily used in the switchboard logbooks in this period <laughs> is the abbreviations like brb and thx pls right for please and ga <laughs> Go ahead. But go ahead, which is like over and out, which is out of all the other ones, it didn't spill over into like text message speak. True, but Adam, we've still got time. <laughs> this is a logbook entry from April the 8th, 1992, night shift. Jeff from Middlesbrough with the speech impediment phoned. He has cerebral palsy. He's promised to see his social worker about getting a minicom system. At the moment, he types into his voice synthesizer machine with his nose. I've said to try it to hurry up and get the minicom so we can justify the expenses. What a guy. P.S. He just loves boys in white shorts with their football shirts tucked in. Sounds different with a voice synthesizer. P.P.S. The voice synthesizer is very important. Give him time and he types it in. The voice is sort of 1970s Star Trek, but he gets there. With a minicom, there'd be no stopping him. I remember that being able to communicate quite easily by phone with deaf people felt like a great advance. My name's Judith Skinner. I was a volunteer at Switchboard from 1990 
to 2001. The way it happened was that we spoke on the phone. There was an intermediary who made the what we were saying appear in text to the caller and they would then text back. And I think, did we then see it on a screen? I can't quite remember how it happened, but I just remember that it just felt like a great thing to be able to do, um, to have that accessibility for people who couldn't just make a phone call. Of course, that was, you know, there's lots of other techno solutions for this now that didn't exist then. But it was, yeah, it was a breakthrough. This is a logbook entry from the 25th of December 2001. Have just received a very irate and angry call from a straight friend of a young gay man. The gay man is deaf and he had read on our website that we were equipped with the minicom device. After trying unsuccessfully to get through, he realised that the information was false. His straight friend wanted to know why we were giving out misleading information. Apparently, the deaf man was very upset about the breakup of his relationship, and in the end, I had to use the straight friend as an interpreter, which was not the best scenario. I think that this man has a very valid point, and all I could do was apologise profusely. For people with um, hearing difficulties, we had a service where they could type messages. And one of the early um, developments was people being able to send messages um, through the system that we had at the time. And that was very helpful. But we didn't get a huge volume of calls. It was quite surprising how low the numbers of calls from people hearing impaired were. Um, We would get quite a lot of calls from people who were physically incapacitated they would find it very difficult because there were very few venues that they could go to where they could gain access to that venue or support when they got there I believe at the time there was a a number of clubs in London for organizations for people with physical disabilities and uh, we would refer them to that organization but I think it was only maybe one or two places. And so it was very difficult. And we had, towards the end of the time, a couple of volunteers who themselves had disabilities. And that really changed things quite a lot because it made everyone very aware of how difficult the uh, premises were for people with disabilities. Let's talk about venues. It's really so shocking so shocking how many venues are not physically accessible but then I was thinking about this and I suppose the fact that I find this so shocking shows how little I've had to think about it right also venues don't always have quieter spaces which is something that we're understanding more of today that some people need yeah exactly especially neurodivergent people I went to see this show by Dan Dorr who's an amazing performer just recently and at the beginning of the show he said Let's bring up the lights as far as they're going to go so that people could see how bright the show was going to be. And let's bring up the music as loud as it's going to go so that you could hear how loud it was going to be so that you were prepared for what was going to come in the show. And those are just some examples of things that performers and venues are doing to make places accessible. 
And if you're organizing a film screening, you've got to think about captions. You might have to think about audio description.、Uh, if there's talks that you're organizing, you have to think about including British Sign Language. And of course, there's all the physical access issues as well, like step-free access, wheelchair spaces, wheelchair accessible toilets, all these things. It's such a battle to try and improve these things because we're working with infrastructure and buildings that don't have any of these things in mind. This is a logbook entry from March the eleventh, nineteen ninety-three. Took a call from a young disabled man who was disappointed that we were unable to help him regarding accessible accommodation he could use after going out on the scene in London. Perhaps we could find some additional info on disabled access to London hotels, restaurants, etc., and have this as a supplement in the info files. My name's Ruth, and I've been a volunteer at Switchboard since 1996, and I'm still a volunteer today. I do remember talking to people that had lots of issues around access. Now I don't know what what year it became illegal for there not to be access to public buildings. Certainly, a lot of gay clubs access was difficult, and I do remember talking to people that had had difficulty in gaining access to gay spaces before the days when people had internet at home,、um, and so they wanted to be able to go to. To clubs and bars where they knew they could get in, whether they had a, a visual disability or whether they were physically restricted, I do remember that because a lot of gay clubs at that time had difficult access. They were down windy, narrow stairs, blacked-out windows, or up very high in rooms above pubs and things like that. If you're a, a wheelchair user and you need personal assistance to get somewhere. And to start with, you've got a barrier. You know, have I got the facilities? Have I got the wheelchair to get out? If I have got the wheelchair to get out, if good old social services have provided something, or I can afford to buy one, given that they are very expensive, then at least、uh, I can I can get so far. I may be able to get to my front door. If I need PAs, are the PAs homophobic? If they're not, and they come with me, are they going to forget and just tell someone back back home where we come from? Are they going to mention it in front of mum or dad or auntie Jess or whatever? And all all these are major concerns. So unless you can sit down and have that conversation with your PAs comfortably and be reassured that they understand how important the issues are, how crucial the issues can be, you could be making somebody homeless. By talking out of, and still in this day and age, then if you look at each impairment, there, there could be something different within that. But the first thing, and this is where the social model comes in, the first thing that you have to establish with each and every disabled person: what are the barriers? What are the barriers to your inclusion in that? And if you're a deaf person or a blind person, it's possibly going to be different than if you're a wheelchair user. One thing that is sure is that you'll face barriers. And so it's an important question to ask. You know, what do you need? And more particular for a lot of gay men than for lesbians、um, was the issue of the clubs and the, and the pubs because it's where gay men meet. Not so much lesbians, maybe more these days, but in, certainly 
in the 80s and early 90s, it was much more about clubs, and probably still is. Trying to get the access information about clubs was an absolute nightmare. Trying to get um, the gay community to take on clubs as an issue, Soho as an issue, was, you know, it's, it, it's like pulling teeth. It's just hard, hard, hard graft. And you may get very little in response. So um, it's, and coming out is a big issue, obviously, to start with. And how are they going to come out? And who are they going to come out for? And where are they going to get the support to come out? All those kind of issues are much, much, much harder if often if you have a disability and as a consequence you end up isolated and not in part of your community or you're not empowered to go and find others like yourself, which in our experience, the majority of disabled people that came to us were in that position. This is a logbook entry from March the 4th, 1999. Just had a call from a man using electronic voice simulator, looking for friendship and to talk about his speech with a gay organisation. According to our files, there are no groups specifically dealing with speech and communication issues, so I suggested ringing his local switchboard, who offered befriending. We had quite a long conversation and he may ring again. I find that particularly interesting, although it wasn't a call I took, because having had um, mouth cancer, I was treated in the head and neck cancer unit at UCH. And there were uh, quite a few people I would meet there who had had to have larynxes removed, who had to breathe through tubes, who had had you know, considerable surgery. Um, and who had to use voice simulators. This is actually pertinent when, when how isolated you could be. But thanks to Switchboard, they're able to help. And he, I, I hope, I hope this person um, did go on to, to meet other people. This is a logbook entry from October 31st, 1994. Had a very challenging call from a guy in southwest London who suffers from a progressive kind of autism. He had a bit of difficulty speaking and was very despondent and says he's planning suicide, such as the degenerative state of his condition. He said a lot of things about disability, prejudice, hierarchy, patronisation, that increased my understanding. A very intelligent and rather humorous man but in a pretty desperate situation, made much worse by the inability of others to understand. Try to do this if you get to speak to him. You may learn something. Sam. Another volunteer underlines progressive kind of autism there. I'm not sure what that means, but now autism sits within the wider umbrella of neurodivergence, which is a relatively new term that simply means someone who's brain functions differently in one or more ways than is considered typical. For example, this includes people with ADHD, autism, dyslexia, dyspraxia, just to name a few things that fall underneath that umbrella. And what we can see in the logbook entries from this period is switchboard volunteers really trying to get better at handling this, like thinking about how to know whether callers had disabilities and whether that should be noted down. 
This is a logbook entry from August the 5th, 1996. Should we be logging disabled calls? We don't always know if the caller is disabled, but it would be good to see how often disabled people call us. Also, shouldn't we be training volunteers to use Minicom? I know there's info in the folder, but Minicom calls are panic-inducing and often abortive. Like anything, it so often takes the person who is disadvantaged or left out to push for these changes. Which brings us to the work of people like Kath to get Switchboard and other organisations to recognise disabled people. Kath founded an organisation called Regard as a network for LGBTQI plus disabled people and to lobby for reform, including the Disability Discrimination Act, which was passed in this period. And one of their big achievements was reforming the Pride in London organisation so that the actual Pride March not only included disabled people, but also gave them a prominent space there. That whatever we did, these isolated voices would come through. It was it was impossible to um, ask people their opinions or try to be truly representative if you weren't going to talk to those people that you know that you were really all about. So it was inevitable that you were going to do a certain amount of supporting. We married them as, as and when we could. It seemed much easier to do the campaigning than it was to support somebody over a period of time and to get them to to either come to London or as and when we could get us regard to go out into the community. So we did that. We rotated the meetings so we went north and south and east <laughs> as much as, and a bit of west, as much as we could, but ended up having really north and south meetings, which um, got more people coming. And then the big event of the year, obviously, was Pride. And it took us a long time working with Pride to get them to take on what the, issue, the issues were for disabled people and what, what they needed. SAD, which um, I was a member of, the Sisters Against Disablement Group, years ago had, set up, had developed uh, an access an access code. So looking at that as some kind of model, we devised, but obviously differently in much more detail, a, 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 an access guide for Pride. And we got that when Pride was meeting as a community group, we got Pride to um, to take that on, and they did take it on. And so for a number of years, when a lot of isolated people, not a lot, over time, isolated people came to London and got less isolated, they came to Pride. And it was a massive deal for them. They felt safer when they knew there was a part of the parade where all disabled would be together and they would be stewarded and they would there would be access stewards to um, to support them if they needed it, etc. That was part part of having disabled people at the front of the march was to set the pace was our doing, having um, having raised platforms for people to to view from. That was our doing. Um, the whole way through, the, from 
beginning to end. Of course, when everybody went off to Soho, we couldn't do that. <laughs> it was never going to happen. So um, we we had our own sort of event after get-together. You know, I don't think there was an awful lot of energy left to party. <laughs> Start so early at these events. Um, yeah, it's kind of six in the morning kickoff to get everybody there and banner sorted and, you know... It was weeks sewing the banner. <laughs> it was, it's it's amazing. You, you think of the intricate things that you do that make up part of a bigger group in an organisation. It was massive. It, it was a huge eye-opener and a relief in many ways to feel that they weren't alone. There were other people like them. And that, you know, when they were speaking that it wasn't like they were talking to the wall or speaking another language it, people recognized what they were saying and said yeah you know we, we felt that or we thought this and so uh, there was a lot of linking and exchanging of stories and whatever and um it was a they were very very important times and we were able to to help them in a lot of other ways that which you know just their own social services should have helped them, but they hadn't been. But between us, because we'd done it for ourselves as well as other people, we knew about how to get things for your home. We knew how to adaptations. We knew how to um, get benefits and what one had to do, how to fill out a form, etc. We had all, between us, we had a lot of information that we could pass on to people that really, you know, hadn't got a toe in the door, really didn't know which, which way to go and, and, and between us we could answer most of their questions. Getting the Disability Discrimination Act was huge because it meant that people had to make reasonable adjustment. You could, you know, you could turn around and say, well, actually, no, it's not down to me, it's down to you. It's down to me to tell you, but it is actually down to you to make the changes. But what we needed, needed was a civil rights act, you know, a proper bill. My feeling, and a feeling of a lot of disabled people, not all, but a lot of disabled people, is that once you marry disability legislation into others, it loses, it loses a lot of its strength. And people get confused about what the, what the issues are and don't know them so well. So, um, and it, um, I feel it has lost a lot of its strength. Kath is amazing. Listening to Kath's stories about the work she's done with regard and the achievements they've made for today, it's still apparent how forgotten people with disabilities are. Yeah, and not just in society in general, but especially within the LGBTQI plus communities, because we live in an ableist society and our eyes are still so firmly closed. We have to start opening them. You know, in regard, I don't, I don't want to, to, to what we, what we achieved was enormous in such, in such a fairly short space of time. We made connections with each other, and we set up a network. So there were people all over the country 
that we knew we could contact about something and get some feedback. So we had, so we created a network to start with. So from that get go, you're you're building and supporting local groups if 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 they can establish them. You know, we can we can fund them in some way. We we also have the expertise to give them give them some advice about what maybe works and what maybe doesn't work. So from the network, we we work we started working within the lesbian gay community. I said largely with pride, because there wasn't a lot else going on. Yes, there were small small groups doing and some things doing doing great things like switchboard but that you know that weren't as such similar groups but where they were we talked to them so we're raising the profile all the time talking to whoever will listen this is why I, I say you have to you have to put it out there and if sometimes it works it's great and sometimes it doesn't and you're disappointed but that's part of putting yourself out there we also developed a newsletter and we sent that around and obviously had to go in every, any format that was needed. Um, so so that went around every couple of months. And that was quite an achievement, again, for a small group working for my firm. <laughs> uh, all the cop- photocopying and stapling and getting articles in and getting photographs in. And you know what it's like. I'm sure you've done it yourself. It's exhausting. Anyway, so we, we used to, don't forget, we're all disabled people all working on a quarter of a bottle of energy, usually. Um, but, you know, it, it was it was also a lot of fun. I like to think it was all, all hard work and not a lot of fun. It was also fun. And then we, um, we established a phone line. So we got money for a phone line and we uh, operated that so many afternoons and evenings a week. So we had to develop a rotor and get people in. And again, you know what that's like. And it's all working from one or two people. Largely me and another. (laughs) Um, Until you can get it more established. But I went to one of the very very last um, efforts I went to at Stonewall. a lot of self-congratulatory stuff going on. Um, and, you know, it's fine. It's what they do. They they get money in by putting on great dinners and all that for the great and the good. And they're all sitting around. And, and for every community, there was, a, you know, something happening and people were applauded for their efforts and whatever. Not a jot around disability. Not a single thing. I had to sit on my hands... But it was also the last event that Ruth was going to be at, and I was not going to sabotage that. So I sat on my hands. Um, so there's never any excuse not to do work on disability. Talking to people that are angry is part of what you have to do if you want to change the world. You know, people have been sat upon, people have been shat upon, if you like, from a great height for a very long space of time, and they're angry. And if you can't go and talk to someone that's angry because their lives have been, well, basically, their lives have not been what they hoped for, um, a lot less than, you know. uh, And if you can't cope with that, then really, you know, what are you doing? That image of Kath in an activist space and the disability point still being forgotten 
It's pretty hard to hear. Yeah. We mentioned neurodivergence earlier. Today, Switchboard gets a lot of calls from people who are autistic and LGBTQI+. And that's because there's a wider understanding of autism today. So we spoke to Erin Eakins, who is an autistic queer person, about the challenges she and other autistic people face in LGBTQI plus communities. I'm Erin Eakins. I use she, her pronouns and I am a queer autistic writer and speaker. A lot of my challenges stemmed from the fact that I when I was coming into my queer identity, I wasn't diagnosed. I wasn't even self-diagnosed at that point. I, it wasn't something that I was even considering. So I was going out and trying to kind of create my queer identity whilst also not being able to cope with clubs and wondering why I was finding friendships so hard. Um, and it was just this missing piece. Like I didn't slot, when I went to university, I didn't slot as neatly into the queer community as I thought maybe I might do so it was like coming home but not quite so that was really difficult for me and it did make me question my 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 place in the queer community but I know for other people who've had for example an earlier diagnosis I know that they've had issues with people taking their queer identity seriously at all so because I didn't have a diagnosis when I was coming into that identity that had its own issues. But if I had have had a diagnosis earlier, there would have been an issue with people accepting that I even had a sexuality. We know that autism is a really key argument of a lot of transphobes as to why kids aren't transgender, because they'll say point to the fact that a lot of autistic people are trans. And they'll say, well, Autistic people definitely can't know this thing about themselves, which means they must be being taken advantage of. Autism is, uh, first of all, it's a developmental uh, disability that impacts the way that people experience and interact with the rest of the world. So it's quite a a broad term. There's lots of different ways that it it presents itself. But some of the the main ways that it presents itself can be in in kind of how we experience things from a sensory perspective. Um, So touch, taste, sound, brightness is a big thing for a lot of people um, but also how we interact with other people how we read social cues how we communicate um, some autistic people are completely non-speaking so use other ways to communicate some are partially speaking and then some like myself um, I'm considered fully speaking even if sometimes words come a little bit harder <laughs> if I'm very very overwhelmed um, so it's kind of a broad brush stroke um, to describe this kind of um, cluster of neurodivergence that often overlaps with other neurodivergences such as um, ADHD for example you know a lot of our historical spaces have been kind of quite shut away from society but because of you know the the queer phobia and transphobia in society which means that they've they're kind of inaccessible I think particularly for physically disabled people but also for um, developmentally disabled people who have sensory issues like myself I can't go to clubs for example and even bars are sometimes a bit too much for me I went to a gay club once when I was at university and I I ended up sort of crying in the corner and I had to be kind of taken home because I just couldn't it was too much people were touching me it was very bright it was too loud some autistic people actually thrive 
in that space um, because we can have, have sensory sensitivities, but we can also be sensory seeking. So some people will seek out bright lights and, and loud noises and really thrive in that space. So there's not a gay bars and clubs are inaccessible, other spaces are accessible. For some disabled people love gay clubs and gay bars and, and can thrive in them. So it's about getting a balance in that space. And I think sometimes the the discussion is more focused on, you know, the, these are our historical spaces and we need to protect them versus, no, those spaces are terrible. We need new spaces rather than, hey, you know, maybe we deserve to have a range of spaces that we can choose from. That would probably be a better idea because I don't want to shut down the, the bars and the clubs with all the history because it's such an important part of our history, those spaces. I I wish I could go to them. I don't want to shut them down. Um, but then at the same time, having maybe more accessible spaces, quieter spaces, spaces, um, online spaces, which are already there. I don't want us to start denying our historical spaces or even our contemporary spaces where people go and it's loud because that's a huge part of who who we are as a community. Um, it's just there's not a um, there doesn't have to there shouldn't have to be a quota on these things. It's not either or. We should be able to have everything. For example, I might need a quiet space, but someone else who's autistic might come in and one of their stims might be that they need a space where it's acceptable for them to make a lot of noise. So our access needs are completely in, in contrast and conflict with each other. Um, so there has to be it has to be an active discussion. Otherwise, it's it fails. And it's why I think that um, queer spaces, particularly prides and things, should have this really active discussion with their um, with kind of disabled queer and trans patrons to see what's what's needed, what needs to change um, and to always keep an, an open mind. The, the best spaces are the ones that are always open for a discussion rather than saying putting a ramp there and setting aside a quiet room and saying, well, we're done <laughs> because I can assure you you're not done. You're never done. <laughs> I feel like sometimes we we overlook the validity of um, and the importance of online spaces. We consider them not as real, um, but for a lot of people, they're kind of the own, the lifeline to the community and you know that the connection to the community. And to kind of to kind of invalidate that is to invalidate. I think a lot of people's particularly disabled people's spaces, um, but also you know the spaces of kids who maybe have queer phobic or transphobic parents and so can't go, go out into physical spaces or people who live in rural areas or even countries that don't have a lot of physical spaces. The online space is so important. So it's as important to make sure that those spaces are safe as possible as it is to make sure that our physical spaces are as safe as possible. It's not just, oh, there's a lot of this type of bigotry in online spaces, but it doesn't matter because it's not in physical spaces. For a lot of people, online spaces are their main real queer space so online spaces have always been kind of my go-to although I do love a, a coffee morning I'll give a shout out to something that one of my friends runs which is called the staying in which is an online virtual pub that was set up for disabled people uh, during the pandemic and they've had they had pride events which I attended and it was virtual with people from all over the world come you know things like that those spaces existing is is so important and and the success of them is really encouraging. My my hope would be that we would really embrace kind of uh, the queer and trans community's history is 
very radical um, and justice oriented. And so is the disabled rights movement. So to see them being more gelled because, you know, there's ableism in the queer and trans community and there's queer phobia and transphobia in the disabled community. To see the the kind of the, the queer and trans disabled people, you know, really pushing and saying, you know, I'm not this and that. I'm both of these things and they impact on each other and they play with each other. And, you know, and when I say I have pride, I have pride in both of those things. The future to me does look more accessible, not just in terms of access, you know, allowing disabled people to be part of the movement and conversation, but also in in disabled, queer and trans people leading the conversation. Because we can be very stubborn and very loud. And I really think there's there's gaps that we're making our way through now. It's great to hear people like Erin talking about accessibility in those ways. And I think it's so important that we're having these conversations and I think that more people should be having them. Yeah, it's, there's still so much for us to learn and there's still so much to do on this point. Now, back to the logbooks. In the 90s, there's another big shift that we saw. That's from people wanting to be parents, especially lesbians wanting sperm donors. So many logbook entries from women calling Switchboard for help with that. Switchboard could have had a nifty little business there. Adam. (laughs) So anyway, that's the next episode, Parenting. Calls to Switchboard are confidential, so to bring the logbooks to life, we've changed callers' details. The Logbooks is produced by Shivani Dave, Tash Walker and Adam Smith in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline and supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. If you think other people would like The Logbooks, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. These ratings and reviews really help others to discover the show. You can send us your feedback and stories to hello at thelogbooks.org or join the conversation on social media with the hashtag TheLogbooks. Our music is by Tom Foskett Barnes and our artwork is by Natalie Dotto. Thanks to... Steph Dickers and the team at the Bishopsgate Institute, the folks at ACAST, Content is Queen, David Pye, the staff and volunteers at Switchboard and everyone who shared their stories with us. Switchboard continues to take phone calls from 10am to 10pm every day. If you're affected by any of the issues in this podcast or need to discuss anything to do with gender identity or sexuality, you can call Switchboard on 0300 330 0630, email chris at switchboard.lgbt or instant message via switchboard.lgbt where you can also donate money or time to help.